The reading today is from Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 3. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred and beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one form from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we we esteemed him not. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Rachel. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. Welcome. Uh, if you're new, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. And uh, we're really glad that you uh, are with us and you've joined us. We're going through four weeks of Advent. We started last week, uh, specifically taking a look at um, Isaiah 52 and uh, 53. And before we get started, uh, I want to pray, and, and we'll dive into our second week of uh, this Advent series. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for your son and what he has done and continues to do for us and the promises that he has given us of hope and of the new Jerusalem. And we just press into those, and we need to, and we are glad for that. And God, as we, uh, we look at what your word has to say uh, about the human condition today, uh, I just pray that uh, you would prepare hearts and minds to hear the message today, that it would be uh, comforting to those who need comfort, but also challenging to those who uh, need to be challenged. And um, especially this week, as I've prayed, I just pray that uh, the way I have chosen to word this would be a way that is tender, uh, but also convicting, that you would use it, that your Holy Spirit would carry the Word of God and move me out of the way and apply it to the hearts of the people of God. Help us to do that this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week in this series, we looked at how God said in uh, really chapter 52 of Isaiah, we looked at pretty much all of it. Uh, God said, listen, you need to not worry because I have a plan. I do have a plan for all of the mess that humanity in this world is in. Uh, All the disorder, all the disorientation, all the destruction. God says, I know it's a problem, but I've got it figured out. This comprehensive consequence of human sin is devastating, but I have it figured out. I have a Savior, and I've had uh, this plan since the very beginning. Uh, And we we talked a lot about that, and it was good, and it gave us hope, and it was comforting. Um, Today, though, he expands on that plan, and he says, and the interesting thing is that you're not going to believe who this plan is going to be executed through. It's going to be executed through the one that everyone would least expect. He's He's not a superhero. He's not a person that you would look at and say, that's our savior, that's the king, that's royalty, that's the one with power. In fact, he's just the opposite. Uh, Scripture describes him specifically here, we saw in Isaiah 52 and 53, that he's marred, uh, that he is so far beyond 
uh, human recognition that we wouldn't even recognize him as a person if we looked upon him. And in fact, if we did see him down the street, if we were walking down the street, uh, his looks would be the type of looks that would probably cause us, if we saw him, to actually cross the street in order to avoid walking right by him, uh, which we do uh, all the time as it is. He's one of those, he looks like one of those kinds of people. Uh, He also came from a no-place place. Um, he, he came from Nazareth, and, and I mean, people would mock him because he came uh, from this no-place place, and, 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 and he came from a, an undignified, thoroughly undignified and unremarkable family that uh, at his birth was, it was embroiled in a huge scandal uh, in their community, and thus he was despised. He was despised because of where he came from and who he came from. Um, and all of this just is put together so that, so that people ended up mocking him. Even in his death, at his worst moment, people would mock him. Psalm 22, prophetic in its nature, a messianic prophetic psalm, uh, describes Jesus this way. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They insult me and wag their heads my way. And yet... In the end, he shuts the mouths of kings because he is the king. He shuts the mouths of the wise, of the philosophers, of the royalty, of the governors. Whoever it is that we think has power, in the end, he shuts their mouths. Isaiah tells us that. And they were stunned when he came busting out of the grave as well. He shut some mouths at that point as well. And we talked last week about the irony that we find in that first verse that Rachel read us, chapter 52, verse 13. The one chosen by God, the, the Savior, the, the suffering servant, the Messiah, he is wise. But that does not mean he's going to be attractive. In fact, God's wisdom is decidedly unattractive to this world. We talked about that last week. Uh, Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It also doesn't mean that just because he's wise that people will believe him. Uh, He used to entertain people. He used to have a pretty good show for some people. They liked his miracles, but ultimately most people walked away from him. And everybody at some point abandoned him. It also doesn't mean just because he's wise, it doesn't mean that he's not going to suffer and grieve and experience intense pain. He experiences pain on every single level. And yet again, in the end, he's going to shut the mouths of kings because he's the king of kings. And we see this irony. We see the reversal of worldly wisdom by God using Jesus as the Savior, the suffering servant. But there's something else about this, about Jesus, that I think is rarely explored. In fact, we named our series The Suffering Servant. That's what the whole series is about. And that's what's rarely truly explored because it makes people uncomfortable when we begin to explore this notion of suffering and emotional pain and depression and challenges and spiritual challenges. Uh, But it has great relevance for us today. I know for a fact it does because I'm a pastor and I know what a lot of people are going through and I assume that others who won't come forward are also going through difficult times and pain. And so I'm going to take some time specifically today to zero in on a portion of the last verse that Rachel read, which is chapter 53, verse 3. The Messiah, Jesus, will be and is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. That word there translated sorrows, the Hebrew word is macabre. Isn't that interesting? It's the word macabre. And it does mean sorrows, but it also means suffering and it means pain. But here's what we need to understand. It's more about emotional pain than it is physical pain. It's more about emotional pain than it is physical pain. We talk a lot about the physical pain of what Jesus went through, and it's described in Scripture. What we don't talk a lot about is the emotional and spiritual pain that Jesus went through. Again, I'm not sure why we don't talk about it. It's there in Scripture. It's all over Scripture. Maybe it's because it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But, but it's the sorrow, this word sorrows, is the sorrow, pain, and suffering experienced in the face of injustice. Jesus hated injustice. He took it as a personal affront when there was injustice. And of course, he suffered the greatest injustice. It's, it's the sorrow and, and suffering and pain that we experience from overwhelming circumstances. Or, or it's the sorrow, suffering, and pain that we experience from, as John Stott, the great pastor and preacher and author has written, and I love this line. He says, we suffer it from the compounding interest of the hardness of life. The compounding interest of the hardness of life. You know, most of us can take a shot. Most of us can take a shot and then another shot and maybe even a third shot. But when life comes at you and it's just shot after shot after shot after shot, eventually it's unsustainable. And that those extra shots always seem to be like compounding interest. It, it, uh, by itself, it may not be that big of a deal, but when you compound it on all the other shots that you've had, maybe you've experienced this before. You're in a season where you just can't seem to get a victory. You're in a season where nothing seems to be going right. And, you, and everything you do to try to fix it isn't working. It's the compounding interest of the hardness of life. Today, we might call it depression. Or at least we would include depression as part of this sorrow. Jesus was grieved that he went to the cross. He was grieved. He suffered. There was pain. He was the man of sorrows. But it wasn't just the physical pain and suffering. It wasn't just the physiological torture that he went through, which was real and true, but it was more spiritual and emotional than even physical. Many of us who have been around church for a while, you've heard the expression, the agony of the cross, right? You've heard that expression? Most of us immediately think of the agony of the cross being that physical pain, being nailed to a cross, and then hanging on a cross, and as your body sags, you begin to suffocate. That's actually how you die on a cross, is you suffocate. It's not from the loss of blood. It's a horrible, torturous way to die. They, they would put a little... Uh, underneath your feet, which were nailed to the cross, they would put a little ledge where um, the, the person being crucified could then push up on that little ledge in order to get some breath just to prolong the torture. And the people would stand and mock and there would be animals that would come. It was physically very painful. But the agony of the cross is actually referring to the emotional and spiritual pain that Jesus is suffering. The, 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 the shame of being on a cross, it's the most shameful thing it's the most shameful way to be executed is to be placed on a cross in a public place where there's high traffic so people could come by and mock you and make fun of you and spit on you and talk about your family. Uh, it was also the, the spiritual pain 
There's one time in Scripture where Jesus refers to God the Father as just God. He doesn't refer to Him as Father. And it's on the cross when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and scholars tell us that it's at that moment that that transference of sin takes place. Our sin is placed upon Jesus. He who knew no sin becomes sin in our place. And at that moment, God the Father, because He has sinned, because Jesus is sin and because the Father is holy, can no longer look upon His Son. And Jesus feels the abandonment, the emotional and the spiritual grief and sorrow. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was deeper and more horrible for Jesus than the physical pain of the cross. And even before it happened, Jesus was already grieving and in pain. And He was even sweating blood. Before this happened, He was sweating blood. We're told in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says in Matthew 26, as He contemplates His purpose and the plan that God has for Him and the pathway to the cross, He says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. As Isaiah said, Jesus became the man of sorrows. The Greek word for very sorrowful means all-encompassing sadness. And then what is the very next thing that Jesus says after my soul is very sorrowful even to death? What's the very next thing he says? He says to his disciples, his friends, he says, remain here and watch with me. Remain here. I need you and watch with me. Jesus needs availability and companionship. In His humanity, Jesus needs community and relationship. Jesus needs His faith family. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about all this, the great preacher. The mind can descend far lower than the body. For in the mind there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Isn't that true? Now, why am I going here? I know some of you right now are like, okay, why is he going here? There's two reasons. There's two reasons. First of all, depression is not a synonym for outcast. Jesus battled with depression in his humanity, as did Martin Luther as did Charles Spurgeon, both heroes of our faith, as did the prophet Elijah, as did Job. Those are people in the Bible, in case you were wondering. But I found, um, and I've been guilty of this too in the past, but I found that too often in the church, and I mean big C church, universal church, but obviously expressed and manifest locally, too often in the church, instead of slowing down and walking with those who seriously and actually deal with depression, we tell them the dismissive equivalent of, well, just take two Jesus pills and call me in the morning. You just need more faith. And second of all, having quoted Spurgeon, who correctly says that the mind can descend far lower than the body, we must also acknowledge that there is only one thing that can, in fact, go deeper than the mind, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul is talking about this very issue. He writes, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations God has given to me, 
A thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, we need to understand, this is metaphorical speaking here. God did not specifically stick a thorn in in Paul's foot or his arm or something. It's not a physical thorn. This is metaphorically speaking for a tremendous emotional attack and pain that Paul is suffering. We don't know exactly what it is, but there are a number of different theories about what it might have been. And they relate to the fact that he was struggling emotionally and spiritually. God has given, this me, given me this thorn in the flesh. And it's actually a messenger from Satan to harass me in order to keep from becoming conceited. In other words, to keep me humble. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, as we would too, maybe more. Please, God, take this away that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hebrews chapter 2 also says it this way, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this should go without saying, but I need to say it just to make sure everybody knows it. I am not a mental health professional, but I am a pastor, and so at times I meet with people who struggle with depression, among many other things, and sometimes I get overwhelmed and sorrowful as well, because life is hard, and I see what Scripture tells us about this. So I'm going to dive into this a little bit deeper. Why? Because depression is something that every human being deals with in some way at some point in their lives. So how? How is it manifested? And there's, uh, there's myriad ways that depression ends up being manifested in our lives. And, and I may not even be able to cover them all, but here are some ways. Sometimes depression is uh, the result of biological or chemical situations in our bodies that you and I really cannot control. We have to admit that that's true. Sometimes it's our circumstances. They're so overwhelming, insufferable, and unfair, just plain hard. It's when life, for whatever reason, just gut punches you over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Sometimes it's a perception on the part of the one who's depressed. They perceive a loss of power or or a loss of control or a loss of purpose. The loss isn't real, but it feels real to the person experiencing it. Sometimes depression comes from our sin, from our sin. We think we know better than God, so we sin, and in the wake of that sin, we see the futility of disordering God's perfect and beautiful order. Sometimes, spiritual, uh, sometimes depression is, is the result of spiritual warfare. You're, you're being attacked spiritually. Satan would love to attack you if you love Jesus. And how often do we read that the giants of the faith, both in the scriptures and uh, after the scriptures were written, giants of the faith had to deal with and contend with demons of potential destruction. We read that all the time. And, And we also have to acknowledge this. Sometimes depression is a calculated attempt by someone to gain attention and sympathy. What pastors need to know and what would be helpful for the faith community to know is that depression is not always the consequence of personal sin or a lack of faith. It's part of our fallen, broken, and corrupt world. 
But many who battle depression aren't personally culpable for it. That's hard for some of us. I mean, Jesus, in his humanity, he dealt with sorrow. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to come every Sunday and dress ourselves up and put on that happy face and pretend that everything's fine? Really? Church is the one place where we should come as we really are. Now, that doesn't apply to your clothes. Please be very discerning about that. But we need to be able to come, okay? See, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to get us to move from a place of judgment to a place of sympathy, compassion, and availability. And I know that's challenging for those of us who never really deal with this in a deep and ongoing way, but that's why we need a a slower pace and we need patience and we need more empathy. Consider this. um, Listen, most of us have never been to a prison, either as a prisoner or as visiting someone in a prison, so we are what I would call prison ignorant. The author Jack Eswine writes this, we would feel more for the prisoner if we knew a little bit more about the prison. One of, one of the, no one can compare to Schrader, I just have to say that as a disclaimer, but one of the persons who has had a deep and profound uh, influence on my life over the years is a guy named David Augsburger, who's written several books. He's a double PhD in theology and psychology. Uh, he was... Uh, I, he was, on, um, he was a professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, and I took a couple of classes from him. I'll never forget those classes. And for a while, he was also the dean of the School of Theology at Fuller. Smart guy. Um, and I remember it was with him I was first exposed to the notion of interpathy. And he explains it this way. He says, you know, there's sympathy, and then there's empathy, and then there's this thing called interpathy, okay? So sympathy is like, the lowest level of feeling that you can have for somebody else who's going through something bad but still feel something for them. So I haven't had a Seinfeld reference in a while, so it's, it's when Jerry's in Monk's Cafe and somebody walks by and slips and falls down and Jerry says, that's a shame. Okay, that's sympathy. Okay? Gee, I'm sorry you're going through that. Would you like another donut? Okay. Uh, empathy is when you see somebody going through something or you're talking to somebody who's going through something and you slow down and you re- you've never been through it yourself. You've never experienced it yourself. But you slow down and you start to think, what would that be like to go through that? What would it feel like if I were in their shoes? It's really trying to understand what it would be like to be someone else going through something really, really hard. You've never experienced that specific thing yourself, but you want to you try and get in touch with it. Um, when it comes to conflict resolution, one of the best things that we can do is, is to try to understand the other person's perspective in the conflict, even if you don't agree with them. That's called empathy, and that, gives, that softens our heart, and that helps us to understand and have a better perception about the other person's reality. But it's still not quite there. Interpathy is when you have actually gone through exactly what they're going through. So you know exactly what they're feeling, what it's like. You know the devastation that's happening in their life. And that actually gives you an incredible platform to walk alongside of people like that. And God is all about interpathy. You just read your New Testament. He's all about that. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you some examples in a minute. But, but it's, it's, um, it, it, here, here, it, here it is. So I'm a pastor. And so occasionally I talk with uh, people who 
have a cocaine addiction or a meth addiction. And, and I do what I can, but I've never been addicted to cocaine or meth. And so I can empathize with them, but I have no interpathy with them. And, and so frankly, they can talk to their pastor, and that's great, but really I'm not going to be able to help them with their addiction in the way that somebody who, what? Who has been addicted to cocaine or meth and who is now, in a sense, defeated it. That's the person who can really help the person trying to figure out this addiction. Years ago, when I was a pastor at um, Paradise Valley Community Church, we had a couple. She was pregnant with their first child, and towards the end of the sixth month, uh, she got up, and and, uh, her husband was already at work, and she was up, and, and she began to realize that the baby hadn't moved in a while. So she was alarmed by that. So she called her husband, and he said, you've got to call your doctor right away. And so he called the do- she called the doctor, and he said, you need to get to the hospital right away. And she got to the hospital. The baby was dead, so stillborn. Devastating. And as a pastor, I was called, and I went down uh, to the hospital, and I was there, and I, I did what I could, but I've never been through anything like that myself. Jackie has never been through anything like that herself. So I did the best I could. I prayed with them. Two years later, another couple, same exact scenario. She's about seven months pregnant. She realizes the baby hasn't moved for a while. She calls her doctor. He says, you need to get to the hospital. She goes out of the hospital. The baby's dead. Another stillborn. I'm called as the pastor. When I get to the hospital, I am not the first person from our church who was there. Guess who it was? It was that first couple Somebody thought to call that first couple and ask them to go down there and help walk this couple through this situation. And at that point, I was relegated to doing, as the pastor with two advanced degrees, I was relegated to doing exactly what I needed to do in that moment, get people coffee and pray. Because the real ministry was being done by this couple who had already gone through this. That's interpathy. That's why we need to walk with people. Here you go. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is interpathy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We must be a community. Spurgeon says this, He who has been in the dungeon knows the way to the bread and the water. Now, this is heavy stuff, I get that. It's okay, we need to be heavy on Sundays sometimes. In fact, most of the time, I would argue. So this, what I'm about to say, may, may feel a little trite in the face of everything we've just said, but it's real and it's applicable, and it happens all the time, and psychologists talk about this. There's a lot of research on this. For the last couple of decades, research continues to come out all the time that says, circumstantially, now we're talking, not talking about any of these other situations, we're talking about circumstantially, there are five things almost guaranteed People are going to be depressed when this stuff happens. The death of a loved one. You're going to feel some depression. You're going to feel sorrow, grief, anxiety. 
the loss of a job, divorce, moving. Can I get an amen on that one? Moving, moving. And then the last one, it's the only one that occurs no matter what, at least once a year. So you're guaranteed to be depressed at least once a year. It's the holiday season. The holidays from about the end of November through first part of January. How many times have you heard somebody say, I just can't wait for the holidays to be over? I know it's because we're busy, but there's other reasons as well. The common denominator for all five of these is loss, grief, sorrow, mourning, and pain. And some of you might say, really, the last two, moving and, and uh, the holidays? Yes. Uh, holidays almost always remind us of lost relationships. It's very difficult, um, I, I found, for the holidays now... Jackie lost her mother in 2001 when she was 62 years old. She just grieves every year the fact that her mom's not with her and should still be with her. My parents are gone too, and I miss them at the holidays. And then, you know, our youngest daughter went off and got married, and now they, she's got this other family that she has to go and spend time with in Florida. I'm happy that she's married, and Joey's terrific. He's great. He's like my own son, but, you know, that Florida thing has got to go. <laughs> it's just got to go. But the holidays, and then, and then moving, uh, though exciting, or can be exciting, it, it means losing familiarity. You, you know, um, uh, counselors tell us that we underestimate how much the loss of familiarity affects us emotionally. It's interesting. By the way, there's a sixth one now that has just emerged in the last five years that almost everybody is in the mental health profession is writing about now. It's called digital communication anxiety. So anxiety, depression, and, and uh, suicidal thoughts have increased exponentially with the advent of this thing right here. Okay? The thing, here's the thing about this one, this sixth one, though is that it's totally, irrevocably self-inflicted. It's your fault. It's your fault. And, and, here's, and this is really fascinating to me. I study this because of the communication stuff. This is what's really fascinating to me about this. All the research has shown that um, our answer to any depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts that we have because we're on screen so much... Our answer to that is not to have less screen time, but what? Well, I need more screen time. More screen time will solve. A bigger presence on the internet will solve this. More text messaging, more social media, more Instagram, more, more, more. I need more. It's insanity. It's like, it's like somebody addicted to meth going, I can solve this meth addiction by just having more meth. That's what we're saying. Here you go. If, y'all, if you get nothing else out of today's message, Jesus is great, but stop with the screens, all right? Slow down your screen usage. I'm not saying get rid of it, but have some discipline in this area. Every person who's ever said, I went on a digital fast, every person who's ever said that has also said, it was magnificent. My anxiety levels went down. Put away the phone occasionally. You don't have to be on it all the time, especially when you're with somebody else. There's a whole new world out there, and it's amazing. 
And, and you realize that some, most of that anxiety is caused because you're looking at other people's dressed up, perfect, edited lives. Okay? And, you don't, and it makes you feel bad because your life is miserable. But you're doing the same thing. You're only putting your best stuff out there as well. So you're making somebody else miserable. So this is all your fault. Coming from both ends, okay? Your answer is, I need more phone. I need, you're Christopher Walken, okay? I need more cowbell. Only it's not a cowbell anymore. It's I need more phone. If you don't get that reference, go to Tempe. Don't give up your phone, but I'm telling you, set it down for a while. Forget it once when you go to a movie. It's amazing. The movie's better. Okay? Now, we're all going to encounter varying forms of pain, sorrow, and grief, varying forms of depression. Ecclesiastes 3 even says there's a time for everything. Time for everything, including a time to mourn, a time to weep, and a time for despair. Depression can be so powerful in our lives that we need metaphor and simile to articulate it. Simple, straightforward language won't do. And guess what? Scripture leads the way. Listen to Psalm 88. And by the way, you could about half the Psalms have language like this. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like the one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. Psalm 42 says things like this, My tears have been my food day and night. Deep calls to deep all your breakers, and your waves have gone over me. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. You can call it a language of sorrows. For instance, today we say things like, we're in the wilderness, having a desert experience, a dry experience. I'm enduring a winter of the soul. There's even uh, books that have been written about the dark night of the soul that we experience. We're caught in a storm. We're in a deep black hole. Pounding waves are rolling over us. We are numb. We feel death creeping toward us. We are afflicted, but we struggle to articulate the affliction. That's how deep it is. So, is there nothing good to say, nothing to look forward to? Nope, here's some encouragement. First of all, learn to cultivate hope. Learn to cultivate hope. Yeah, you've got to work at this. We need to remember that the cross, the resurrection, the second coming, and the joy of the new Jerusalem are genuine hopes that we have. Our hope is not a worldly hope of what if. That's worldly hope. What if the coyotes actually made the playoffs this year. There's no guarantee. There's a guarantee that Jesus is coming again. Absolutely guaranteed. Our hope is it's coming and God fulfills His promises. Second, practice presence. Both as one who has sorrow and as one who's enjoying a good season. If you're enjoying a good season, you're needed. Your presence is needed. If you're having sorrows, you need the presence of others. The problem with people who are having sorrows generally is that they tend to withdraw and not tell anybody. And then they tend to get mad, which fuels their depression because nobody is noticing that they're depressed, but you haven't told anybody. We need to be told. You need to reach out. You need to talk to your RC leaders. You need to talk to your friends and your family. You need to talk to your friends and your RC you need to engage people who will walk with you. 
And that leads into the third thing. Seek comfort and honest self-assessment, both sides of that coin, with your closest, most trusted, gospel-centered relationship. You know, having coffee is great. I have coffee with lots of people, and it's good to have those coffee meetings to catch up and to laugh and to have fun. But occasionally, those coffee breaks need to have some meat to them. Also, do not disregard the spiritual disciplines. This is one of the biggest problems that we've had in the 20th and 21st century because it's been in the 20th and 21st century that that Christians have largely walked away and become dull about Bible reading, fasting, praying, journaling, silence, Sabbath, service, and true brotherly and sisterly love manifest in soul, gospel-centered relationships. And without these disciplines in our lives, what has happened? Well, there's breakdowns in faith communities. There's more depression and anxiety, and there's a deep sense of hopelessness. Even around the church, which is where we should be the most hopeful. We also need to talk to ourselves about God's promises. I mean, that's perfect coming off of our 15-week time in Exodus, because that was all about the promises of God and His character to be faithful to His people. Peter also talks about this character and the the pursuit of the disciplines and the promises of God. Uh, By the way, a lot of Peter's stuff has the background of Exodus sitting there. It's really good. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes this, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. But also, in addition to all of that, don't be afraid to seek trained professional help. I I meet with a lot of people um, because they're struggling with something and there are times when when good pastoral shepherding and counsel is effective. But there are also times when in my assessment what the person needs is good clinical help. And I will tell people, you you need to go to somebody who is specifically trained in this area because they will be able to help you in a way that nobody else can help you because they're trained in this and they're good at it. And I will honestly tell you that at times it stuns me that people look at me and say, really, you're a pastor and you're telling me to go seek the help of a psychologist or a psychiatrist? And the answer is, yes, God can work through their education and their empathy and their compassion. We need to use that as a resource. And finally, remember that we have a Savior who gets us and gets our suffering, so run to Him. Hebrews 4, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. But one author reminds us of this truth. It's very important to understand. God's promises are not magic. We can't just claim a verse and say, okay, everything's fine. Nor nor can God's promises be manipulated as to time or space. They work in relationship and they work in time. 
And we need to understand that. God's pro- Here you go. Here's what the author writes. It's, I love this. God's promises are more like love letters than incantations. An incantation is something that you, that you repeat over and over because it'll make you better really fast. That's not what God's promises are. They're love letters. They're things to be cherished and held and, and remain uh, available to and in presence with and to come back to over and over and over that help you to develop a relationship with God. So remember Proverbs 21.5. God says that steady plotting breeds, uh, brings prosperity, but haste brings poverty. And that, that poverty is of both mind and material. So be steady plotters in the midst of this. There is no 45-minute cure. You can't go to a counselor for one session and walk away and expect to be cured. You can't meet with a a pastor or an RC leader for 45 minutes of coffee and expect that your whole world is going to be turned right right side up. We need to be available. We need presence. We need to be steady plotters in this. So here you go. Manage your expectations. Manage your expectations realistically. Uh, Consider this. Isaiah... Isaiah was preached and written more than 600 years before the suffering servant Jesus was born. It's prophetic. And he nailed it. He got it right on every single count. But what that also tells us that he did this 600 years before is that God himself is a steady plotter. And so is Jesus. You read the Gospels. It's amazing. From the beginning to the end of his ministry, he had one goal and one purpose that he steadily plotted towards. Um, Next year, 2020, after Easter, we're going to start the Gospel of John. We're going to go through it exegetically, verse by verse. I think it'll take us into 2035, I think is when we're going to be done with it. Somebody didn't want to do a preaching calendar anymore, so they said, we're going to do John for 15 years, okay? Just kidding about that part. We'll be in John for a long time though. But one of the things I'm going to want you to see is how there's just this steady plotting of Jesus to the cross. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That was his plan. And he never deviated from that plan. He never got pulled off his game. Even, even the advice of his friends said, don't do it. Even the advice of Jesus' own human heart said, I don't want to do this. And yet in the midst of it, he plotted his way to the cross and he did that for us. There's our hope. There's our comfort. There's our discipline and there's our primary presence. Psalm 34 says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do pray for our emotional and our spiritual states. we should recognize that we often at the expense of our emotional and spiritual states pay way more attention to our physical state. And we need to care for our emotions just as much. So help us to do that. And remind us that it was your son who had sorrow who did this for us, who saved us. What a great testimony that is. We see in his humanity everything that troubles us. So he experienced it. He does have great interpathy with us. And so we can press into him. We can lean into him. Help us to do that. Give us the courage to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.